Have any feedback or suggestions for the show? Why, I do, in fact. Please email us at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. Okay, coffee and how do you spell consoles? That's C-O-N-S-O-L-E-S at gmail.com. Welcome, everyone. My name is John. I'm Kevin. This is Coffee and Consoles. What song are we talking about today, huh? We're going to come together, my friend. Come together. In unity. In peace, peace and love. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're going to hold hands. See, the Beatles are so, so associated with peace and love. We both exactly. instantly said it without talking about that previously. Nope. We're on the same wavelength. Mm, no pun, pun intended. In, pun intended. <laughs> so come together. The first track off of the Beatles, Abbey Road. Well, before we before we get into that, what, what you been doing this past oh. couple weeks? What have I been doing, man? I've been playing some gigs this past week in prep for this episode. Ah. I threw out, uh, made sure we uh, played, come together at a couple of gigs, you know, just cover gigs, bar gigs, downtown Nashville. So that was fun. Bachelorette parties welcome. Exactly, yes. And many drunk cowboys, weirdly enough, last night. Really? I think... Uh, they all go to the, the boot store? It must have been. I mean, there's this one drunk-ass guy with a cowboy hat and a weird shirt. Like, not a typical, like, Western shirt. No, was he wearing a bolo Stri- tie? No no tie. Ah. But he was, like, insisted on, like, just finding women throughout the bar and to flip them over, like, while dancing. Oh, no. Like, doing the flip thing. That's and so not okay. I think one girl, like, twisted her ankle, maybe. Oh. <laughs> they, they, was all he kicked the- out? I no, he was there for way too long. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just that just shows you when you when you go to downtown Nashville, sometimes a drunk cowboy is gonna flip you over their shoulder and you're gonna sprain your ankle. If I had a dime for every time that happened, <laughs> I'd have well one dime. <laughs> well, how about yourself? I've been thinking of new and uh, adventurous ideas to do in my in my time for those of you who don't know i i injured myself uh running a marathon well it wasn't during the marathon it was actually the last training run before the marathon what bad luck i know i know it's well it's my fault doesn't matter we don't we won't get into your fault (laughs) get into that it is your fault (laughs) but i ran the marathon regardless of my injury and injured myself more (laughs) Like go figure. So for the past three or four months, I've had some uh, some some pretty some pretty nice uh, serious hip issues, and I finally went to the doctor, and uh, they said just chill for for a few weeks. They said it's a sprain. They said it's not it's not a big deal, but you do need a rest for it to heal. Yeah. So uh, yep. Now I'm under doctor's orders not to do uh, any activity that annoys my hips or anything that will further injure me. So I've had a lot of time to think, Johnny boy. It did take a hit on your uh, hula hooping career. No more hula hooping. Yeah. No more hockey. No more running. I've I've your been Hawaiian hip dancing, thing. Hawaiian hip dancing, yeah, my belly is. dancing, belly dancing. Yeah, I've been bored to tears. I know. So I've been trying to think of interesting, fun things to do. But how's your hip been feeling recently? You know, uh, it's been two week. weeks since I've done any sort of activity with it. And it feels really good. I'm, You're not running. No, right I'm not, yeah. I can't do any of that. Do I can. The that. only exercise I'm permitted to do is upper body. So I'm gonna have some really sweet arms and really uh, gonna say small you're legs. Quite swole right now. <laughs> that is a lie. I've gained weight because I have not been exercising, and I haven't stopped eating. So it's hard to stop eating. It is hard to stop eating. 
So especially after like a late bar gig, get home at two a.m. or so, and just, oh, you just attack you the pantry. Is, yeah, chips. It's hard to say I, no. I like snacking. Yeah, I like you know like mixed nuts. What's your favorite post gig snack? Oh, it's totally uh, tortilla chips. Tortilla, yeah. yeah. Some... Even if I just have them and nothing else, like no, plain. no salsa, queso. What do you? Prefer? I mean, if I do have salsa, I'll go for that. But sometimes you just got to take what you have, and it might just be a leftover bag of tortilla chips. I'm not gonna lie. I've definitely sat on my couch at two thirty in the morning after a gig with a stale bag of tortilla chips, even if they're stale, <laughs> and ate them all. Oh yeah. <laughs> and my freshman year in college, sometimes that was my meal. Because I got so tired of the cafeteria food. I just have like, you know, bag of tortilla chips. Sometimes not even salsa or queso or anything. No guacamole. Just tortilla chips? It would just be that. Would you sit in the cafeteria to eat them? No, I would just be in my room. Ah, playing practicing guitar, no doubt. Yes, usually. Got to get those those scales and things. Everything I can't do on guitar, basically. And while also watching simpsons episodes on the computer uh, the, uh, you're dating intra- you're dating intranet. yourself yes, my, on the, my friend our building's intranet that we had with a t1 line how fast was it do you know well however fast a t1 line was back then which was like state of the arc in 2000 2001 <laughs> i don't even know if i have heard of a t1 line it was still through the phone line through the phone line yeah. t1 oh, we're gosh. gonna look this up because i'm genuinely curious i just remember that was the thing our apartment building had the latest in internet speeds. Oh, man. Dating myself quite a bit. <laughs> oh, man. So, Johnny Boy, your T1 line. It was enough to watch, you know, poorly, uh, you know, compressed Simpsons episodes. <laughs> poorly? I thought you said something else. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> your your T1 line, state-of-the-art back in, back in your college days, had a maximum speed up to 64 kilobytes Ooh, per second. Oh, oh. A, Hold on, cowboy. <laughs> a terrible, a terrible internet speed today is like five megabytes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I think you need. I think you need at least like seven or eight to stream things. That's incredible. But there's yeah. not as much data coming through the lines back then. No, no. So. But man, we were filling that, filling it up though. Like roommates would just have. You know, <laughs> this was back in Napster days. So ah. Napster running twenty four seven, constantly downloading MP3s, just like a queue, like hundreds of songs long. Just like next. Lars was right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> back in the good old days. Back back in my day. We uh, are we drinking any coffee today? I think we, we are. are. We have an Ethiopian City Plus roast today. City Plus, and I'm not sure if we've drinking this in the past. Yeah, so so for the uninitiated, coffee roast levels they kind of go <laughs> City City Plus, Full City, uh, Full City Plus, and then you start getting into your really dark roasts like your espresso, your Vienna, your yeah. French. Oh yeah. Um, your Italian roasts, and you're essentially after that you're just burning coffee, and, and this is a this after is, that you're at Starbucks. Uh, yeah, you're at, you're at Starbucks. Don't get me started. <laughs> burn your beans, Starbucks. It's all right. They have to. They have to source it. But uh, don't burn your beans. It's it's it, it, this, is, this is good. Like it's it's um kind of has chocolatey notes. Pretty okay. delicious. Nice. It's a it's a darker. I like I prefer my my coffee on the lighter side because it retains the uh, yeah same here original quality of the beans you buy 
Yeah. And that's why Starbucks burns theirs is to make it uniform so they can make their same caramel macchiato in Indiana oh, that they can make in yeah. Seattle. But yeah, this is this is good coffee. Highly recommend roasting your own coffee. It's not hard. Yeah, you're really into that. I'm pretty into it. So yeah. I roast about three-fourths of a pound every week for myself and my wife. And I do it on Sundays, you know. Wake up from the gig and good day to roast beans. You roast some beans. It does make your house smell almost entirely like burnt grass the entire day. Yeah, you said the smell is kind of bad. It's kind of bad, but yeah. the machine I have doesn't produce a bunch of smoke, so I can do it indoors without. That's good. Yeah. Too much problem, and we're we're nearing fall, John. Perfect time. Which is just excellent coffee drinking weather. You leave the windows open, perhaps a little bit. Mm. Don't. It's funny because you'd think roasting beans would actually kind of be a pleasant smell. I, You know what? I actually do kind of like it, but I might be in the minority of that. And it's one of those things. It's kind of like when you start drinking beer, you don't really love the taste of beer. And, and then you drink more of it and more of it, and you kind of acquire a taste for it. Yeah, I've exactly. kind of acquired the smell okay. of, of roasting coffee. Sure. Because I know what that means. It means in 24 sweet hours, I will have some delicious coffee. Anyway, nice. back back to the matter at hand. Come together, which is what coffee does. It brings people together. Exactly. Like mine, which is actually from a, uh, I believe, a Seattle, Washington coffee. Oh. Not Starbucks. Is it though. Pete's coffee? No, it's there. not Pete's either. It's uh, Seattle's best. Viking brew Viking. Coffee. I've never had Viking brew. Neither had I. A friend of us... Uh, friend of my wife and I brought a bag back over. Really? As a little thank you for like driving her to the airport. So it's a darker roast as well. Yeah. Ah, pretty see, dark and chocolatey. And, and usually I'm not into that, but it, it tastes pretty good though. I uh, I may have spent some time in, in Seattle in my youth. I may, may have lived there for five or six years. I, I never you say may have as I, if it's, I, I there's no did. evidence of it or <laughs> there might not be evidence. I don't know. You be well, you, you know don't what? recall. There is a picture of my, my wife, then girlfriend and I on the ferry crossing uh, the Puget Sound going to Seattle. Okay. But if you don't, if you don't know the area, then you might not, not, you might not be able to recognize. So other than what I just said, which I'm not admitting to being in Seattle, uh, Actually, you know what? I can admit it. I, w- I lived in Seattle for a little bit. Yeah, why not? Across That's the fine. sound, actually. So it's not really Seattle. It was like, uh, like fake Seattle. It's like a twenty-minute ferry ride to Seattle. Oh, so you're like the Jersey to Seattle. Exactly. Sense? Yeah, it's 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 either a three-hour drive or a twenty-minute boat ride. Take your pick. Well, I guess a boat ride is more like forty-five minutes, but like it felt like twenty minutes. You know, because. You- Pleasant boat ride. Yeah, they have like the shipyard over there, and so like occasionally you'd see like a submarine or whatever pass you by, which was kind of cool. Oh, nice. The Beatles. The Beatles. Let's get into it. Why not? Let's get into it. So you chose this song. I did. Apparently, I've been choosing like fifty-year-old tunes. <laughs> That's all right. I chose a seventy-year-old <laughs> tune. That's true. <laughs> but it's like we're in that. Right now, we're in the time period of like fifty years back. So many like big musical things happened so true so this is another 69 record they started to record abbey road i think in the summer of 69 like around early july if i'm not mistaken well actually not to just okay you're not wrong okay uh but from the research i did their first session was on february 22nd okay earlier and it it ended 
in August yeah. of the 20th. But from what it seemed like, it was like they would do one session and then it'd be like a month or two before they did the next one. Yeah. yeah. So I think the majority of the stuff was during the summer months. It would not surprise yeah. me because I've experienced the same type of thing in my work where we'll, we'll cut when a you few work demos. With the Beatles. Yeah. Well, no, not when I work with the Beatles, but when we cut some songs, we'll we'll cut we'll cut some songs or some demos, and we might finish one or two, and then we won't finish the actual tracking for the album for four, five, six, six months, and then all the recording happens yeah. in like three weeks. And in my experience, it's been more like a year and a half later. Like, yeah, finally finish it, like, or oh or gosh. five years. Yeah, digging through your hard drive, and nowhere near as good as Abbey Road is. True. So the cool thing with this album, I think I knew this back in the day that time-wise, as far as being in the studio recording the tracks, this is their last album they recorded as a band. Hmm. Even though it's not the last released album that they put out. Because what they were doing before the material that became Abbey Road was going to be an album called Get Back, or perhaps The Beatles' Get Back, because they had already recorded that tune, Get Back. Mm Mm-hmm. And at that point, they were already in disarray, falling apart. Even uh, the producer, George Martin, after that, after some of those sessions for Get Back, he's been quoted as saying, like, I figured that was the end of it. You know, they weren't going to ever get back into the studio again, in, in a sense. But some point in 1969, I believe it was Paul, rings up George Martin and says, like, we want to come back into the studio, do another album somewhat like the old days. And George Martin was like shocked by that. He like couldn't believe like they're actually going to get everyone. <laughs> they're actually going to talk to each other? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for those, you know, who know, and I mean, I'm by no means a Beatles expert at all, but, you know, at this point, you know, John Lennon was with Yoko Ono and they Pregnant. were starting to do that thing. All their kind of activism and even I think early 69, they had released uh, Give Peace a Chance. Mm. They're a plastic Ono band. Plastic Ono band. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. So in a sense, like this album was not supposed to exist in a sense. It was like the unexpected, truly last album that they, you know, put together. And so, so that's kind of cool, like backstory. And I have so many little notes here, my friend, from printed out lyrics to... Random notes about gear and recordings, and I brought you two books as you, we were just looking That's through. Right. Which the one book is, I think I got it used at the McKay's a used, used book? bookstore. Yes, I has a has like an awful one of those stains. You're not quite sure what that stain is. Uh, <laughs> someone must have really enjoyed yeah. the Beatles. So this is the Beatles gear by Andy Babiuk. Babiuk. Bab. Buick? Not sure. Andy. Let's go with that. (laughs) Yeah. But this was kind of a cool book cataloging all the gear, like musical instruments that the Beatles owned from like the mid 50s through the end of the 60s, which was pretty cool. No small feat. And we had it open to the page of uh, George Harrison's Les Paul that was given to him by Eric Clapton, we believe. Originally a gold top. Yeah, and actually, yeah. so I actually see in the book after we were talking about that, the book says it was given to him by Eric Clapton as well. Yeah, okay, so we, yeah. we are, assumptions were correct. Yeah. Probably during the uh, 
white album phase, if I'm not mistaken, since Clapton did this solo on while my guitar jimmy uh, weeps. Yeah. Because those two chaps were, they were good friends. Like they were. Clapton and stole his wife, actually. Clapton stole Harrison's wife. That's true. It's, uh, <laughs> you would think that would, like, you know, end more than just friendship. friends. I know, Eskimo right? brothers. But it's one of those weird things that they just knew it was meant to be, in a sense. But talk about, like, a muse to English rockers. Like, sure. I mean, supposedly, Something by George Harrison, which is the second track on That's a great Abbey tune. It, oh, it's wonderful. You know, that's kind of inspired by Patty Boyd. That's mm. him writing to her. And then, of course, infamously, Layla by Clapton. That's about Patty Boyd, too. What about Wonderful Tonight? Was And Wonderful Tonight. Exactly, mm. yeah. So, three incredible songs. There's probably even a couple more. I think a couple other Harrison songs he wrote kind of to her, for her, like, If I Needed Someone and For You Blue. Imagine, imagine Clapton stealing... Harrison's wife, and then having to outwrite him. For I the know, love right? Like usually, it's enough just just to play guitar, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now, you, now you got to write a better song than George Harrison to, to impress her. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of about almost ten years later from the time period we're talking about. That's more into the late seventies. Once she leaves Harrison, hmm. marries Clapton. So yeah, so they're supposed to record an album called Get Back. Yeah, and of course they had that tune tracked, and so they come back to George Martin to do what ends up being called Abbey Road. You know, they had some songs, and at first, John Lennon was, I think he was on vacation in Scotland when they some of the first tracks were starting to do, so it was just the three of them, Paul, George, and Ringo, who were starting to put some stuff together, and like some of the first tracks were actually like those songs that appear in the second half of the album, like during that humongous medley of kind of continuous track-to-track thing. But he got injured in an accident, I believe, a oh, car, car accident, accident. In, yeah. Yeah, in Scotland. So that kind of delayed him coming back to start this uh, recording session. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's how they found out that Yoko was pregnant. Was oh, really? Due to her that? treatment from the accident, they discovered that she was pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least I read that in in an article, either from uh, Guitar Player Magazine or uh, from Music Tech. Maybe it was from the Music Tech article about this. But yeah, I think I think that's how they found out she was pregnant, which led to her being in the studio with mm. the with the Beatles during the recording because Mr. Lennon didn't didn't want to leave her alone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She was always by his side. Right. Much to the dismay and i guess <laughs> chagrin of the others you know. yeah i don't think they which you know it's kind of fair i kind of understand i like people in the studio as far as when i'm in the studio recording when there's a bunch of guests it's sometimes it's really hard to focus and concentrate oh, it's like impossible yeah you know it, but people all in, like hanging out in the control room they're and they're talking and you're talking trying to like listen critically and Drinking and or partying suggesting and things. How yeah, dare they? I know. That's when you get too many cooks who aren't even cooks in the kitchen. It's fairly popular for for bands to have like no guests in the studio type of rule. Yeah. Sometimes they'll do like if you want to have a guest, then they can come on Fridays type of thing. Uh, at least back in the old days when you would rent out a studio for seven months at a time. 
Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, it's like, no, we have to get work done. Yeah, like seven days. <laughs> that's that's not to say that every guest is disruptive and it's not okay. You know, no, most people are disruptive and, <laughs> and jerks. Like, trying to work here. Sorry. So, yeah. So Come Together is it's credited as, well, I guess legally it's credited as a McCartney Lennon track, like as all their songs were during the Beatles years. But it's a John Lennon song. And... What's the story that you know about the meaning of the title? I actually don't. Okay. Don't know a story. Because I always grew up, in a sense, it's a double meaning, you know, double entendre for the title, come together. So I always heard the uh, the sexual side of that title, uh. meaning simultaneous orgasm, basically. Ah. <laughs> you know, like, come together over me. However, I did not know until I started digging to this well, some of the history of this song is it actually comes from, and this is from John Lennon himself, Timothy Leary, the LSD guy from the 60s. He was planning to run against Ronald Reagan in the governorship for California. He's going to run for governor of California against, you know, then, you know, Ron- Ronald Reagan before he became president. And Timothy Leary's campaign slogan apparently was going to be come together oh. and even he kind of timothy leary himself was quoted as kind of noting the you know the two two meanings to it in a sense you know sure. like come together to form a political party you know the other meanings that sort of thing so he comes into contact with john lennon and yoko ono in the probably the early 1969 when they were doing their have you heard of this they were doing a bed-ins Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah like I've, a sit-in, like a protest, but they just lie in bed yeah. and invite the press to they, come. They didn't talk even to have them. Netflix back then. No, yeah, I know. <laughs> Couldn't even Netflix and chill. You just chilled, I suppose. So Timothy Leary and his wife, they showed up to one of the last, if not the last, like bed-in that John and Yoko were doing. So that's where they met and Leary asking Lennon to come up with a campaign song for him and saying like, you know, the slogans come together, can write a, you know, song for our campaign. So that phrase was like whirling around in Lennon's head for the next several months, come together. And he was trying to like come up with something like, you know, go in and give peace a chance to, since, you know, they just did that track, which apparently I guess Timothy Leary is one of the background vocals on that track for give peace a chance. Really? Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. So he eventually starts to piece together something that becomes the song Come Together. But it's a lot faster, though. Like, he's thinking, like, more like a faster blues. And the next, like, interesting thing I didn't realize about this song, and we were just talking about this beforehand, was that very first line when he can What is it? Here come old flat top. He come grooving up slowly, you know. Yes. Is a take from, especially that first part, Here Come Old Flat Top, from a Chuck Berry song. Chuck Berry Strikes yeah, Again. Chuck Berry Strikes Again. You Can't Catch Me is the song of that one, which is like kind of like fast blues. And we were just listening to it a little earlier. One, I didn't actually know that song. I hadn't really heard that one before. So it was kind of more in that style that Lennon was trying to write Come Together. The interesting thing is yeah. the uh, the meter and kind of like the rhythm of the other lyrics in the Chuck Berry tune very closely resemble exactly. come together. Yes. And you just slow it down. I wonder I know you you can you can copyright a rhythm, 
but I don't know. Like that's, that's very gray area, right? Like this is my little tough rhythm, right? <laughs> but it's because of that line and you guess what? We have ourselves another copyright infringement lawsuit on our hands a ah. little bit later from the owner, I guess, apparently of the Chuck Berry catalog. Right. Which like the publishing company was called Big Seven Music, but they were owned by Morris Levy or Levy. Apparently was like a mobster, but also like a you know, record label owner and everything else. Classic like, music industry. Exactly, yeah. So he sued in nineteen seventy three, so not too past when the so this album wasn't was this wasn't necessarily a case of hey fifty years later we're gonna try and no get it money was on pretty the back soon end. afterwards and they probably like we have spoken about in previous episodes that you know you don't necessarily listen to all the music coming out it's a lot harder to listen to new music yeah. back then although the Beatles were a fairly popular it, band back was, in nineteen sixty nine yeah and this was a huge release too so. It, I don't think it would have been four years before they heard the song. But no, no, but it was I probably piecing it together like they have a the case. flat top it's, line. Yeah. It's like, hey, that's exactly from this Chuck Berry song that I own the rights to. Right. Now, how big yeah. was his catalog? And when did that song come out to like kind of connect all the dots is a, yeah. maybe a little bit more difficult than we think. Yeah. Well, the Chuck Berry tune, You Can't Catch Me, that was probably from the 50s, I think. I don't know. 56 looks like, yeah. But I didn't know that Chuck Berry connection. And this wasn't a case of, as we were talking in a previous episode, the uh, cryptomanesia, I believe. Right. Yeah. The unintentional stealing no, of intellectual property. This was intentional, but not thought of as stealing, but more so like paying homage to. Right. Because it's well known the Beatles were huge Chuck Berry fans, especially Lennon. And so he had Chuck Berry on the mind when kind of coming up with Come Together. And so he wanted to throw that line in. He wanted to keep it. And there's probably people think that he probably had more like direct quotes from Chuck Berry tunes within the lyrics. But Paul tried to filter him out like, he can't do that. Like he even, it's been noted that you know Paul McCartney was trying to get Lennon to take out that flat top line. Like, because uh-huh. Paul knew it right away. He's like, hey, that's Chuck Berry's. You can't catch me. You can't, you know, you can't nick that. <laughs> and but no, but John Lennon wanted to keep it. He thought it was like a cool, like you know, paying tribute to Chuck Berry. Or in classic Lennon case, he's like, "We resurrected him." And you're like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." Like we can use that line. But apparently, they had to settle out of. I think they settled out of court for that lawsuit. Most of these things tend to settle yeah. out of court. But the, the interesting thing about that settlement was, Lennon agreed to record three other Chuck Berry songs in the f- future at some point as part of that settlement for this, you know, one line from Come Together. Oh, so they were trying to get Yeah, so there's a couple, like, old... Oh, where's this at? Some of Lennon's solo albums. He has a couple Chuck Berry songs on there. Did... Okay. Yeah, Lennon had one album called Rock and Roll in which he did a version of... Well, actually, he did a version of you can't catch me. Funny enough, and then a uh, version of Yaya, yeah. and so he was supposed to do three, and, but the third one never got released. Uh-huh. It was, and so then <laughs> the mobster guy Morris Levy sues again for breach a of breach of contract. <laughs> yes, after Lennon died because he couldn't record that third 
album. And oh, that's like, just vindictive. I know. So he sues the estate of John Lennon, a.k.a. Yeah. Yoko Ono. Oh, my gosh. But uh, he was only awarded uh, apparently only like $6,795 totally for that it. breach of contract thing. Yeah. <laughs> but then Lennon, or I don't know if it was Lennon or his counter estate, or his uh, estate, sorry, countered sued Levy because he released an album of John Lennon material using tapes that he had in his collection. And I guess uh, Lennon won that suit for $84,000. Oh, man. Yeah. So all he's, this he's up 78000 huh? I guess so, yeah. I hope that all made sense. I'm kind of reading this from Wiki because I hadn't heard any of this side of the story before. But kind of just interesting backdrop to like someone just trying to like, you know, throwing in what they think is like a homage to Chuck Berry. And right. It's kind of tipping his hat yeah. to Chuck Berry exactly. and then yeah. leads to another, you know, eight, nine years of legal okay. battles. But that's not the only tip of the hat to an artist who the Beatles and Lennon admired, especially growing up. With the, and this is another thing I never really took away from this tune, are there's a subtle Elvis characteristic to this tune. And Lennon even, and it was purposeful too, like you get to the chorus of the song. Come together. Over me. That little break when it goes over me. Mm-hmm. That was Lennon kind of making fun of Elvis because uh-huh. a lot of Elvis tunes would always go, you know, like they always have that band break and he'd be like, over you. He didn't like Elvis? No, he did like it, but or, he just thought it was kind of like poking a, fun at him. He's, you know, in his mind, he's poking fun at him, like throwing in this like break with just like over me. Uh huh. I see. Some some good natured jesting. Yeah, yeah. Which probably no one would ever get outside of like him, and unless he told you know. And here we guys, are, fifty yeah. years later, talking <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into some of the, you know, the song itself. It's like a early rock and roll song made more modern sounding and so i was saying earlier that Lennon, he had this tune in mind come together it was a lot quicker it was like a quicker rock song or kind of like a rock blues song and once they're in the studio like he's playing on acoustic for them and he's you know i'm picturing something to this effect You know, something, you know, upbeat, kind of like a bluesy rock and roll tune. And it was at Paul's suggestion that they slow it down. And uh, even his word was swampy. Like, let's slow it down, make it swampy. And Paul comes up with that riff, you know. Which is maybe my favorite part of the entire song, to be honest. Yeah, it's so great. That intro is like, ooh. Yeah, and there's so many things about that intro, too. So, yeah, they slowed it down. They made it swampy. But if you listen to uh, You Can't Catch Me by Chuck Berry and John Lennon singing on Come Together, taking into account the difference in tempo, is that... You know, it's um, kind of mimicking to an effect Chuck Berry's uh, phrasing on that tune. So they they make it swampy. They slow it down. I always forget the syllables at the beginning of this song. But it's shoot me, that Lennon saying. 
At the is that what he says? That's what he says. Huh. Shoot me. You can barely make out the me part of it. Shoot. Yes. Just sounds like a shoot. <laughs> and then he's doing two hand claps. He's like, shoot me. And then they throw on that tape echo on both. Of, you know, it's just through one mic, throwing the tape echo and to get that so distinctive and like memorable, like shoo, 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 like that shuddering right, well, sound. And don't, isn't Ringo also? And then Ringo the kind of answers it with you know, on the hi hat. Shoot me. It all comes together so perfectly. It's like probably one of the most ingenious like drum intros that Ringo. How long do you think they spent trying to nail that? So like. They decided to go slower, and Ringo being Ringo, which... <laughs> Ringo! <laughs> yeah. I mean, by all accounts, and this is not a diss on him, like, he was the best drummer in the world. He did his part, though, within the band, did it well, but he would, like, lots of times play the drums not like a drummer would, as mm-hmm. I think of it. Like, almost like, okay, I'm not going to do a beat at all. I'm just going to kind of do these, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. You know, just like little parts that it's one thing, then another thing. Hi-hat toms, hi-hat toms, that sort of thing. But it fits perfectly with the the tune, with that bass line, the little shoot me, tape delay on that. You know, it, it just all meshes together until like right. one like so distinctive sound that just picture like, you know, like you bought the new Beatles record on vinyl. You take it home and this is the first track you hear and it's like, crazy sounding in a sense yeah well and also since we're talking about the drums one of the one of the things we'll speak about a little bit later is the uh the console that they were using mm-hmm. which was new to abbey road at the time and one of the the biggest features i guess you could call it was the fact that they could finally record drums in stereo oh yeah this was the first album i think that they were able to do that now you, you listen to the drums and they're still predominantly on one side yeah, you know the the mix engineer said he like spread them out through the spectrum. I guess as much as they've yeah. ever done back for those days. But you listen to it now, and you're still like, yeah, it's really like predominantly on one side. It's not sure. like it. It's not like what we would think of as a stereo recording. But there are there are sections of it where you can switch the drums from one speaker to the other, and they kind of do that, which is really interesting, especially because yeah. because of this intro. Oh yeah. They also I noticed they pan the drums and. Uh, drummer perspective which bothers me <laughs> oh really you know i used to do everything in player's perspective sure but then i started listening to uh just you know recordings that my peers and myself kind of agrees that these are great mixes and i noticed that i would say like 95 percent of them are done in audience perspective hmm. perspective I, I mean that makes sense now that i switched to doing that i can't like it's like oh what are you doing that that just sounds wrong <laughs> yeah it's not yeah. you can do it however you want yeah, either way yeah. it's just interesting thing i noticed like right away like probably no one else would even even pick up on that if you're not you yeah know, unless you're into it. a drummer or a musician or anyway recording engineer producer <laughs> yeah well speaking of the drums um how they get this sound of them too apparently they just threw tea towels over the drums and the yeah, those real dead muffled. Them. Yeah, it, it's like what would probably become more of like a not a signature sound, perhaps, but like a distinctive characteristic of drums. Like later on into the seventies, that kind of like dry drum sound. Oh, like yeah. nothing's really ringing. It's very 
I don't want to say dead sounding, but just kind of like more of a. You could characterize it as yeah, that, for sure. Yeah, I, if if someone came to me and said I want a really dead drum sound, I would know exactly yeah. what they were talking about. Yeah, and I'll come to like like this song is like a perfect example of it. Oh yeah, and also I briefly talking about this in another th- episode. I think when people talk about the sound of tape, you know, you get audio files. You're like, no, nah, nothing's like the sound of you know being recorded on tape versus like digital recordings. And in my mind, I realize when I think of like, what is the quote unquote sound of tape, this song comes to mind. Like this is immediately what pops into my head. Let me ask you this. When you listen to this song, does it also remind you of the sound of tubes? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. So we'll get back on that. As a guitarist, yeah. We'll get back on that later. But that's really interesting. Yeah. Because of the console they were using. Okay, yeah. Okay. Was actually not tube. It was solid state. Oh, solid state, they, really? They had previously only had tube consoles in there. The the REDD.37 and the, the REDD.51. Those are completely tube-based machines. But this was the first console that was transistor-based. So it was solid state. And there's oh, some yeah. important things that they were able to do because of that. But that's... I wanted to ask that question, not to try to make you look silly, but just, it's it's interesting to me. Damn you, Kevin. Yeah. You tricked me. I mean, they're still <laughs> using two mics and, and stuff for sure, um, but it's just interesting because we we as an audience have a idea of what this equipment sounds like, and a lot of times, it's not actually the case. Like, what we, what we think something sounds like is not what it is at yeah. all, you know? Oh, yeah. I remember I was blown away when I first found out that you know on hendrix's are you experienced album a lot of that was the guitar plugged directly into the board <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm like what what do you mean yeah i think you listen back like okay some of that that kind of makes sense now <laughs> the same the same with uh the solo on another brick in the wall part two the oh, Pink yeah. floyd song the recorded on a gold top with p90s direct straight straight uh, blah, blah, blah. I can't talk. Plugged directly into the console. Yeah. No Are you end. talking about? Yes, that is what I'm talking about. I, solo. And yeah. I think I think Gilmore hated it, and I think I think he may have uh, convinced the the producer to go back and maybe reamp it at a later date. But I think oh, I think yeah. what you hear is actually the DI sound. But it could be a blend of the two. Well, it's like a very like yeah, that one's like a very kind of like spanky. Oh, yeah, it's really like clean. It's like, just really... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thought that was interesting. Yeah, oh, definitely. Coffee sip. We both literally just took a sip of our coffee. So, yeah, we had the drums, that distinctive sound, that tape echo with, you know, Lennon just being you know, one mic, and he's, like, doing that hand claps. I never knew there were hand claps in it until I, like, listened back again. I, then I could hear them. Mm. Yeah, I, that's pretty cool. But I bet if you remove them, I bet the whole thing sounds strange. Yeah, yeah. It's like everything's, granted that bass riff is hugely important with how Ringo fills it in, but that echoey thing at the beginning is just such a distinctive thing. Like For a while, I always thought that maybe it was like a mistake, but they liked it, so they... Kept it in. Yeah, kept it in to like, and then redid it every time, because it almost sounds like it could be like a like a hiccup almost that gets like... Right. Thrown through a tape machine for delay purposes but no that's super cool so we we're talking about like how it was kind of surprising to 
George Martin that the Beatles were willing to come back together in a sense and actually record an album and try to make it like the old days, like they'll all be there. And it was kind of halfway that way. You know, the initial like basic tracks for the most part, they actually did record together. Right, live. Um, yeah, recorded live. But then it was all the overdubs, anything. That's when it kind of separated back out. Like Paul would do his overdubs by himself. John right. would do his overdubs by himself, so forth, so forth. I believe there's one song on there, um, The End, yeah. where they, they all, there's like a triple guitar solo type of deal, and that's actually all three of them playing at the same time. At the same time, yeah. yeah so that would be uh, one of the exceptions. It was one of the rare, rare cases where they all kind of like were transported back into their, their youth and they were all yeah, just kind of just beaming jamming. at the end of it. Yeah. Cause yeah. everything was, was fun again. You know, they, didn't, a, they didn't hate each other for a, for one or two minutes. Yeah, exactly. The power of music. I don't hate you for <laughs> this guitar solo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it was kind of sad, like listening to Paul talk about the recording of this song come together. Um, because after that, you know, the initial takes, you know, Paul was playing keyboards, you know, the, and apparently while they're recording the basic tr- tracks, you know, together, it was noted that John Lennon would be like looking over his shoulder, seeing what Paul was doing on the keys, taking note of it. And so when they went back for some overdubs, John Lennon actually overdubbed some of the key stuff, mimicking what Paul was doing. Mm. And, uh, and he told Paul, like, no, I'd, uh, don't worry about overdubs. I'll take care of them. Because Paul wanted to, like, sing the harmonies with them, like, live, or at least overdub them live, like they used to do, like, you know, sing the harmonies together. But no, uh, Paul did his separately. And, you know, John Linton did his separately as well. So. Yeah. One of the great, great sounds in, in music, John Lennon and Paul McCartney singing together. Yeah. They just, it was, like, meant to be. Just, it just works. Yeah, it just blends together so well. But it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like a sadness once yeah. you hear about that. That It was kind of like a compromise of, okay, we're at least going to work together again in the studio. And, you know, even for this song, it wasn't fully completed. It was mostly finished and, you know, especially lyrically written out in the studio, which, you know, Lennon is known to say, like, the lyrics to this song are just complete gobbledygook. You know, yeah, he I've just, heard that. Yeah, so there's, you know, people have tried to, you know, come up with meanings and secret meaning. Yeah, wow, like the together. code within. Sounds the, like a YouTube video. I know, right? The Beatles truther. When you like, when you play them backwards, exactly. And <laughs> of course, they're... yeah, like he's referencing some things. Like he references, uh, you know, muddy waters. He references the Walrus from I Am the Walrus, and he even references Yoko Ono as a. Uh, oh, where's the line at? Ono sidecar, I believe it is. You know, like, meaning that she was kind of by his side the entire, you know. Mm. And some people have thought that each verse represents one of the Beatles. Like there's a Paul verse and there's a George verse and there's one about John himself, but none of that's really substantiated at all. It's just all, you know, fun fanfic in a sense. In a sense, like, the lyrics, they do kind of fit the aesthetic that, you know, that kind of Chuck Berry kind of wacky aesthetic. You know, you just, you know, Juju Eyeball, he won Holy Roller. He got hair down to his knees. Got to be a joker. He just do what you please, you know. 
like nonsensical, like he got monkey finger, he shoot Coca-Cola. Well, that's a little bit more, you know, direct. A little more on the nose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fun stuff, lyrically. So you want to get into, uh, there's a couple other like musical things we could talk about. Like apparently uh, George Harrison wasn't really sold on the guitar solo as it's, you know, played and recorded. I guess it was the other guys had to talk him into like, no, like keep keep with that. Like that's good. That's so often the case. Yeah. I, <sighs> I think, yeah, we're our own worst critic in a way. For sure. Yeah. But the cool thing with the guitar solo is how it blends into the next song, something, which never occurred to me until I was just listening to this album again today. You got the uh those kind of classic, very bluesy, soulful bins. And that, you know, the track fades away, and then the very next song. Kind of have a very similar phrasing with, you know, it's not a whole step in like the others were. And then something. I don't know if that was purposeful on any of them to like have something come right after coming together, or if it was just like subconscious. This <laughs> fits into the as being the next track on the album, but it finally only occurred to me today. Like, holy crap, that's kind of a cool like musical connection. You know, it's not the same notes, not the same bend, but it's that same uh, phrasing of the line. That volume knob is it's tricky today. I'm trying to be careful with the volume knob. Turn it down so I don't just hack away while I'm playing. Like. <laughs> <laughs> During this time, like it's noted that George Harrison, he had his custom-made Rosewood Telecaster mm. that he had. He had a Strat as well, Fender Strat, and then also the Les Paul given to him by Clapton that we were just talking about a little earlier. And amp-wise, they're just playing through Silverface twin reverbs. Paul was playing through a bassman, and we could, you know, through this book, talk about every other instrument probably, but it didn't seem like there was anything new. Guitar and players also, are weird. Yeah. Musicians, I guess, <laughs> in general, where we don't... You we tend don't to really stick with like something. the old, new technology. We kind of oh. kind of stick with the older stuff. Even today, like the most popular stuff is just re reissues, reissues, yeah. and and stuff from from yesteryear, or and finding twenty, thirty, forty year old guitars. Yeah, <laughs> what about their gear though? It, it's kind of inspiring to me to think that aside from the Rosewood Telecaster, which would yeah, cost a, a fortune and yeah. weigh a thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Aside from that, most of this stuff is perfectly attainable by by anyone, really. I mean, you know, if you yeah, even, even if you don't make much money, you know, if you save up for a while, you know, we're talking a Fender Silver, whatever Reverb Deluxe, or I know they were known to use AC30s, Foxes in their early days oh, and yeah. stuff. And it's like all those base. gear is perfectly attainable. They still make it. Yeah, there was no such thing as boutique instruments or anything like that yeah it's just i think it kind of goes to show that is in the uh, hands of of the musician that kind of makes things special yeah and probably why certain things like a twin reverb are kind of like staples of a sound these days because they're just used on everything that's true (laughs) back in the day day. i think that might be it like i think the only uh other fun thing and this is kind of just uh 
nerdy music theory thing is, you know, this song is like also a perfect example of the characteristics of blues, like just from the musical side of things, like that mix of major and minor, that seemingly contradictory pairing in music that you can have both at once in a sense that a major harmony with minor melody it's like the, the it's like the quantum theory of of music <laughs> perhaps the string theory <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> oh, but yeah. uh so this the tune and it doesn't follow a traditional 12 bar blues at all it's once the verses start four measures on your d and just doing that classic the kind of classic blues almost old school boogie woogie riff Five chord. And then stay on that G and then usually back to that riff. And that's where that minor bluesiness comes back in. But then the cool thing when they get to the you know the chorus to come together, it does sound major. Come together. But they go to the, the minor chord, sixth minor. Yeah, which would not be a common chord to go to in like a traditional 12-bar blues. You just stick with your one, four, five, one. But they go to that sixth minor for the chorus. And it kind of both kind of sounds a little bit more uplifting, you know. Come together. Right. But it's hitting on that minor chord. That's kind of... That's Love interesting. That kind I, of, I never uh, even really paid attention to that. Seemingly contradictory uh, nature of that. And also, probably one of Lennon's last Beatles songs that they would have recorded then at this point. Because I think, really, on Abbey Road, the only one that, the other song that he was most responsible for would be uh, I Want You. She's so right. heavy that everything else is... The wall of guitar song. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is awesome. <laughs> I love that track. But most of the second half of this album, like the incredible medley, you know, that just blends from one track to the next, you know, that's mostly Paul. Yeah, well, I read that John actually hated the idea. Yes, he did, just yeah. Just despised <laughs> the idea of doing a medley. But then yeah. they said once they actually kind of got into it and like Paul asked him to contribute some some things to it then he he started to come around to the idea yeah. classic Lennon. he seems like a very complicated difficult guy to work with yeah and we could get into it if we wanted to i know perhaps on in these future days episodes. like especially with kind of more more of a woke culture there's some canceling of linen as the kids say today <laughs> oh especially, cancel culture yes cancel culture like yet he was an asshole like there's awful stories of how he uh, treated and just like, kind of emotionally abused his like first wife. Maybe one or two instances of like physical abuse, but like his first wife, who her name is escaping me at the moment, Cynthia, I think. Cynthia. They were married very young, weren't they? Yeah, they got married young, right when you know, probably when the Beatles were still just playing bars in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah. Um, but it's with uh, Cynthia, Cynthia, who he had Julian with his first son. Mm-hmm. And he was just an absent father to Julian, who, of course, is uh, what Hey Jude is written to. Yeah. 
it was like Hey Jules, I believe, because they would call him Jules for uh-huh. short. But then they kind of coded it with Jude, so it wouldn't be quite as yeah, obvious. But <laughs> yeah, but they're like, you don't think Lennon saw right through that? I was like, I don't care type of thing. No, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, he must have known, right? I mean, he, yeah, he would have. This yeah, is purely just... I think he probably took it as like a, a friend, you know, offering some emotional support in a way or saying that, you know, here to help in a sense. Later on, like Lennon knew that he was not a, a good husband at all to Cynthia or a good father to yeah, Julian. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to, to go back in history and kind of pick apart these historical figures for how they don't live up to the standards that we have today. And yeah, I don't think I that's mean, necessarily fair to them. Not that we have to condone their behavior, but we just have to understand that this was a, a different time in human history. And unfortunately, treating your wife poorly was not as uncommon or looked down upon even as, as it is today. Yeah. Rightfully so today. You know, Probably I think, sadly I think true. We're, yeah. we're moving in the right direction here. But it's just, um, it's easy to go back and say that, oh, well, I would I would never do that. And, sure. And yeah. I, would, I would love to think that we are all more intelligent people now. But uh, we well, don't really know, do I mean, we? <laughs> Yeah, there's some like just like sad stories though that you would hear. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, because I mean, he was also into drugs at this point and you know, substance abuse, drinking. When Lennon first started to meet Yoko Ono and hang out, like, like he would invite her over to his house because she was in you know, to the art side and like, right. she, like, be like, oh, she's going to build a oh, what was it? There's some weird story that Yoko was like wanting to build. I think it was like birdhouses or something or gazebos or something like that. Something like an art project, but it's like a birdhouse. And he's like, oh, come over to our house so you can like, you know, do that. You know, like build one for our house or something like that. He had to come up with excuses to bring her over. And there's one point when like Cynthia was going to leave him. Oh, while he was married, you're saying? Yeah, so while he was married to I Cynthia. See. So he was um, kind of... And Lennon would always be apologetic, you know, do the whole like, no, 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 like, I really love you. Like, you know, even if you'd start to admit that, yeah, maybe I'm, you know, sleeping with Yoko, but it's just like a, it's just a fling. It's nothing sure. serious. Well, and Yoko gets kind of a bad rap, uh, which she is... She does, yeah. I don't know if probably, it's wholly deserved. No, it probably really... <laughs> mostly probably isn't, you know, the whole like, she broke up the Beatles. Well, they were going to break up. I think yeah, we all they were already that. there yeah. in a sense. Um, it's when you're young, she just and happened to about, be there while it was happening. Right. <laughs> when you, when you were young and learning about kind of the Beatles and stuff, it's really easy to, to cast blame, but I, yeah. I think they're going to break up regardless. I mean, they hated each other. <laughs> like, they, yeah, they started to really grow apart. I, mean, I guess, I guess, I guess saying that they hated each other is maybe a bit strong, but they were really starting to resent each other. Playing the clubs in Hamburg, you know, they just shared a small little, like, apartment, mm-hmm. you know, play their five, six-hour gigs every night, you know, up until 4 or 5 a.m. And, you know, I mean, they're around each other literally probably 24-7 for years. So eventually you're just going to grow apart. I think they're yeah. kind of trapped by their own success, too, because there's yeah. only three oh, other sure. guys in the world that can know what you're going through. And yeah. And you're always with them and like you, you know, what are you talking yeah. about? What are you talking about? The, after you know, the, nine one, years? the one side, you know, you get to the point where, you know, they're finishing each other's sentences. They all get, they all kind of had that same like dry British sure. wit, wit, that dry humor, Liverpoolian wit, you could say. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. She does probably get a little bit of a bad rap. I did come across a recent podcast and oh my gosh, the title is, it's leaving my mind at the moment, but they essentially like talk about like 
kind of common myths that we grew up thinking. Mm-hmm. And they did one episode on Yoko Ono breaking up the Beatles, and they get into like the really the behind the scenes and the the backstory to everything and how they're already going to be breaking up. And if anyone anyone's to blame for the breakup of the Beatles, it's the Beatles. I was going to say it's probably yeah. just the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of unfortunate, but I can kind of understand why people needed someone to blame, right? You know, these are oh, yeah. you people's need heroes a, breaking need up. Need a villain. And, you know, the one interesting thing is, like, especially with, you know, probably Paul and John, they were, like, media darlings. Like, especially certain segments of the media, like, they felt like they owned the Beatles. And to an extent, like, the fans, <laughs> too. Like, like, they felt like, John was one of them. Like, Paul was one of them. Right. Well, they came and, from working class backgrounds. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, they had so much appeal, widespread appeal. And then, you know, here comes this Asian woman who's kind of quirky and avant-garde, and she's stealing John away from right. he, She's taking our, our media yeah, darling. Exactly. And she's corrupting him. Yeah, exactly. Now he's starting to talk about politics and They're laying in bed yes. for twelve hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In, in the <laughs> storefront in New York. <laughs> yeah, and she's doing you know weird art ex- exhibitions and such, and and so of course like she's going to get the brunt of everything. I was like, oh, it's her fault for breaking up the Beatles, but the writing was already on the wall. Indeed. Well, let's talk about some of the recording. Yeah, aspects man. of this. I see you have. Some notes yourself. I got, I got, I got some notes yeah. here. So as I mentioned before, the console that recorded this album was super cool. I, I kind of wish I could have this console in my house. It would cost a fortune just in electricity. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But it would be Probably. so cool. <laughs> Not that there are better consoles these days. It, it was actually thrown away in a dumpster at one point. Yeah. Just a few years How does this after. Happen? How does someone throw away? A, I mean, this thing so, had to be massive, right? Oh, yeah. This this thing was huge. I don't um, know how I'll you, you get into a, a dumpster. Oh, we don't need this massive thing anymore. Take it out to the trash. Yeah, so there's there's a picture of it. Um, it, it had like the half quarter arc fader, so it makes you feel like you're flying an airplane when you're like Man, moving the. I'm just gonna say it looks like a you know Star Trek. Yeah, console. it's it's a super cool console. It's the EMI TG one two three four five. Worst password ever. <laughs> all these all these consoles were were developed in house by by Abbey Road. So that they probably just didn't want to come up with a name or EMI rather. But yeah, so this console was the first solid state console. Interesting. Which yeah. Like I asked you earlier, you, you kind of think of this record and it's like, yeah, that's kind of like, oh, that's all tubes. And, you know, this is, you know, totally like classic vibe kind of recording. And it turns out, no, this is, they they may have been using tube guitar amps, amps and tube mics. Oh, yeah, mics. definitely tube mics um, and amps. But they were also using dynamic mics and, and solid state mics, I'm sure. The console was completely solid state transistor based, which is super important for the sound of this entire album um and also come together i it kind of seems like we could have maybe done like a four five hour like super episode about like the entire album oh of course (laughs) um and maybe we will but we uh, will someday this uh this this console really really cleaned up the recordings i went back and i listened kind of back through their catalog kind of similarly with the bing crosby thing where you can kind of hear 
a recording technology on the verge of major paradigm shifts, almost the same thing, maybe not quite as drastic. We are in kind of like the modern era by this point, but just in terms of solid state versus tube, our own preconceptions of it, maybe what you would think, at least for me, yeah. when I started recording, I, I always thought, yeah, tubes are like super warm and like have the great low end and, you know, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And a little bit of like grime or saturation. Oh, yeah. Well, that's tubes, definitely a yeah. part of them. Actually, one of the complaints about the console when it was first installed in Abbey Road was the mix engineers called balance engineers at the time they couldn't get the aggressive kind of edgy sounds that they were used to because they couldn't distort the signals as easily yeah that's one of the main things that that makes the abbey road album sound so clear is the low end didn't distort so easily so like the oh, bass okay. lines are really clear just like yeah, the, very the lower end of the feel. entire recording is very very clear especially if you go back and listen to like Eleanor Rigby or uh, Nowhere Man or one, some of their earlier recordings, and then you and then you play this. Now, there is a caveat here: we can't hear the original recordings anymore. Sure, what we're listening yeah. to has been remastered, and, yes. and so the low end has been Probably improved. Been, yeah, improved a lot. Or <laughs> carved out. Or carved out. Yeah, even with the modern mastering, you can still kind of hear how you go from like a relatively. Uh, muddy low end you would say by today's standards mm -hmm. to uh, go really much clearer more well-defined low end in in abbey road and a large part of it thanks to this solid state console that didn't distort easily easily one of the interesting things i read was an interview from paul they recorded this on eight track mm -hmm. and he thought that was too many <laughs> he thought it was too big a luxury. Yeah, back then. You like, know, he was we like, don't need eight like yeah, what are we going to do with all this eight tracks? And, and other than that, they had 24 inputs. So this console nice. had 24 mic inputs, and then each output fed one channel on the track of the tape machine, a 3M tape machine, and it was eight tracks. So it just gives you, instead of having all the drums on one or one and two, they can now spread yeah, out the drums a little bit. Spread them out. Kind of get more of a a proper balance or mix as, as they would say. And every channel on this console had its own VU meter. That was not common. That was, this is actually the say, first time this happened. That sounds like something that would just be commonplace. Standard, Even right? if you only yeah. had like four channels, you'd have four VU meters. So when I talk about how challenging it was to do these older recordings, they didn't even have meters to go by. You know, they, they wouldn't even necessarily know something was distorting with a meter, you can kind of get a sense like, okay, I have this much headroom that gives plus or minus like 5 dB. I'm kind of in the safe zone here or like I'm kind of trying to push it a little bit more. So, you know, you give yourself less headroom and push it into distortion. They had none of that. They just had, well, this is making sound. So that's great. We've, <laughs> we've done our job. Also, if you are having a problem with a mic or channel or something on the console, way harder to troubleshoot. <laughs> way, way harder. Oh, yeah. They don't even know. Like, they, they, it's all just based on their ear and their guess. And I guess you can take away all the other channels and use, like, the main VU meter that they had for their left, right. But anyway, that was a big deal. They also had a limiter slash compressor on every single channel. Oh, wow. Which was, yeah. again, a huge deal. A uh, luxury. And this, this compressor slash limiter, it was operated via toggle switch. So you had comp, which was a two to one ratio, mm -hmm. very, very mild compression. 
I think I start at like four to one for vocals. And then sure. you had limit, which was eight to one, which was by today's standards. That's not even really limiting. When I was in school, they taught, they taught me that limiting was any ratio above 10 to one. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, so a lot more mild compression settings. Yeah. Yeah. The recovery was a six position switch between a hundred milliseconds and five seconds. And the way these attack and release times kind of worked, it kind of mimicked the Fairchild compressor. It's a famous all tube compressor that has set release and attack times. It's a variable mu compressor, which is just the type of topology that the compressor uses to actually do the compressing. Mm -hmm. um, we won't get into what that is right now. But this was, again, this wasn't tube. This was, this was solid state. But they yeah. tried to mimic the attack and re release times. And each channel also had an EQ, which was, again, wow. a huge deal. Yeah. So I kind of found this interesting. So the treble EQ was plus or minus 10 decibels at 10K. That's what they got. Wow. And I think I think that was some sort of like it didn't say if it was if it was a shelf or if it was kind of like a set ratio yeah, um like parametric EQ. I'm sure someone like knows. A, like a bell curve around that. Exactly. 10K. But the bass was a low shelf and it was plus or minus at 50 hertz. So this if you kind of low. That's kind of low. Yeah. <laughs> Actually I don't I'm not even so sure that they would have the technology to hear much past that through the the speakers through the speakers they're using. Yeah. I mean like obviously if if that's what they designed the console to have, they must have been able to hear pretty yeah, decently. So I thought that was interesting and then there was additional EQs. They called them cassettes, group cassettes, so you you mm. they're just groups. I mean, the British people are weird with their names, I, was gonna I guess. I say like what we think of as a cassette those weren't even out yet. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure of the origin of the word yeah. or, or where that comes from. But essentially, they just they had subgroups. And you had a presence control of 10 dB, about 500, 800, 1.2, uh, 1.8, 2.8, 4.2, 6.8, and 10K. So you had a little bit of options there, which was yeah, kind of kind of rare. It would seem like for back then. It was interesting because the presence control was so popular with the guys who worked at EMI that it was actually included on uh, any modifications on consoles. They, they just kept adding the, the EQ and also the, the VU meters were a big deal. Yeah. They, they really, really liked those. I was just going to ask, like, do you think the idea of that presence knob or presence control, was this like a first for that? Was that around? I can't imagine it was a first necessarily. I'm trying to think but of. But the fact that it was on like every like channel. A, yeah. I think that was maybe a first. I think. Guitarists, you know, we know that a lot of amps will have like a presence knob. Right. And one, well, a lot of times, again, another, another British thing, like with Marshalls, the difference between treble and presence is like really confusing. It can be. Is it? Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same thing, but it's like at different. Yeah, like when I'm when I'm playing through a spectrums of the a Marshall, like yeah, band. like a presence yeah. is like kind of your nice high end is that as the way I'll describe it. Yeah, where you can kind of crank it and things get brighter, more more uh, like it's it sounds like a shelf, you know, like it's yeah. kind of like a smoother top end roll on or off, whereas the treble knob on a Marshall amp, once you get it past five. It starts to be like trashy, transient, 
like very aggressive like pick sounds. Yeah, not not like a pleasant. Right, like it's very very kind of different sounds, and and to me that kind of sounds like a uh, a parametric a fixed a fixed frequency with a parametric EQ that mm-hmm. maybe it's proportional and it widens as you turn it up. Maybe not, but yeah. That that console is really interesting, and then EMI donates it to a school, and a few years later they throw it in the trash. We're back to the trash. Yeah, yeah. they throw it in the trash, and that's so luckily, crazy. Luckily for for us recording enthusiasts, someone actually realized what was in the dumpster and picked it up and put it in his car, and it, it is now in a private collection. No somewhere. way this fit in a car. I can't. Maybe a truck. Maybe I he had a truck. Had to be some sort of a truck. Yeah, that thing looked huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Old old but, recording uh, consoles are all hand wired, point to point. So, that, a good, uh, uh, good Samaritan, though, nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Saved it. Here's here's another one of the EMI consoles, just to show you how large these things were. They're they're kind of huge. Really cool sounding. Another famous album recorded on this TG one two three four five console is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Which would probably be another like example of when people think of like, yeah, the sound of the sound of tubes. Oh, tubes that, that actually like, reminds me. Yeah. So I actually, uh, when I was in college, I had to do an experiment for a, for one of my science classes, and what we chose to do was the actual measurable sonic differences uh, between a solid state and a tube microphone. So what we did is we yeah. found. We found mics and their tube counterpart. So, like, we would do, like, a FET 47 versus a, a U47. Okay. And a, a, a U67 uh, versus the uh, 87 mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. We kind of went down the line. Uh, C12 versus 414. It's kind of like another similar one. And we, we would measure them. And what we found was the tube amps actually have way more high end in them than, than solid states. The two, oh, the two microphones. The two, microphones. Mic- the two yeah, mi- yeah. yeah. Did I say amp? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. The two microphones have more high end in them. And Interesting. Th- there's also the distortion characteristics that they distort easier. Now, that's not to say high end is bad. Well, or- in a way, actually, that kind of makes sense to me because at least from, as a guitarist and thinking of like solid state amps versus a tube amp, solid states are going to be a little bit more compressed and a little... If anything, you might call them slightly, I don't want to say duller sounding, but you know, you don't have as much headroom. And I think there tends to be like a little like less possible high end that you could get out of it if you wanted to. So I yeah. guess that doesn't, it's not too surprising to hear that. I like was surprised by it because for years, all I heard people say online and and just when you would talk to folks about it is, oh, you know, tubes are they're so warm. Yeah, so think, warm. Yeah, warm. That's the that's, that's that's the that's the key marketable word you hear associated with tubes. Yeah. And for warm, you know, frequency wise or musically wise, you're thinking something darker sounding, not right. as high end, you know, centered, you know. Lower in not necessarily lower end, but something that's Almost as if you had your hand in front of your mouth while talking. Right. Yeah. Like, like, like when you take your tone knob, and yeah, roll down on the exactly. guitar. Yeah. You, you can. Have... Oh dear. Hey, oh, oh dear. <laughs> I'm a guitar player. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Although I've also. 
also learned in in some in some uh, circles when you say uh, bright or dark, it actually re- refers to tempo. Oh really? Yeah. So someone says, "Yeah, I just I, heard, I want it to be brighter, yeah, bright more. tempo." Yeah. Quicker Brisk tempo. is really what they're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's I mean the the words people use to describe things is all over the map. Oh gosh, man! I used to do a show choir camp every summer. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and for those who don't know what show choir is, you don't want to know what show choir is. Don't don't don't. I hear the YouTube. Yeah, just picture like like the TV shows like Glee or High School Musical, but worse. Right. But yeah, the show choir directors, when they're trying to like lead the songs and they'd come up with every adjective in the world and besides like the one closely correct one, you know, like, right. yeah. You just, yeah, you almost so, become like a, a code breaker when you're oh mixing. Oh my gosh, yeah, like, can we, can we make this more salty or, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure, okay. Sure, okay. That means you just want it faster, probably. <laughs> See, now you say salty and I think <laughs> if someone told me and like I want this I want this bass to be salty, I would distort it immediately. Sure, to yeah. To me that's yeah. what that means. Like I want it rougher, I want it to be like grittier. But it's, it was it's either, or if, you know, as a guitar player, anything they said just basically meant uh throw on more distortion. More distortion <laughs> or louder. <laughs> yeah. Or more reverb. Guitar players, we love our reverb. Yeah. Can you bang it more? Can you uh, bash it? I want it to be bashy. I need need you to bash this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, It's all just kind of interesting. And what does that mean as an aspiring recording engineer or a uh, practicing recording engineer? Well, if if you have kind of a a dull sounding instrument, you can maybe offset that by using a tube mic. And maybe that'll be a really great match. Or or the opposite. Maybe you have – I've always kind of had trouble – with singers that kind of have like that bright rock and roll kind of voice, almost like Lennon, but but like maybe like another notch or two above that. I'm trying to think of a good example of someone, but I can't right now. can't think of it. Anyone, but but, maybe some of the, the eighties guys maybe would have like a, that high end. It's a really high end. Yeah. Yeah. I I found that. I know what you're talking about. When you, when you put a tune mic in front of those guys, I've found that it just doesn't work. Sure, yeah. It's like too much of... It's too much. Oh, you need one to kind of cancel the other out. Yeah. Almost. So... For you have someone worth, who like has a darker voice, in a sense, you know, too much. Yeah, it works really well. Awesome. Like for those those classic like uh, Johnny Cash kind of like... Yeah. Like oh, yeah. He'd big, be a perfect... Voice. 47, I think, is what they use on him a lot. Frank, they use a 47 on Frank Sinatra. Or actually, it was a Telefunken 251, I believe. Um but it, you maybe we'll talk about the history. There's a lot of things we might talk about. I'm finding hey, yes. Uh, the the history of the Telfunken 251. We're like jumping from a tip of an iceberg to another tip. Yeah, of an iceberg <laughs> to another one. <laughs> They're really cool mics, but basically, it was either it's Neumann and Telfunken. They were kind of were the same mics, and they were kind of like Telfunken distributed Neumann mics for a while. So Sinatra got used to seeing the nameplate on the mic oh, so he yeah. had of to course. have you know yeah. one of those type of deals of course yeah. i can't remember if it was telefunken or neumann i think it was telefunken though because they became much much harder to find yeah yeah so sinatra uh also a fan of the george harrison song something ah yeah well who is a fan of something? well that's true but yeah it's a it's a gorgeous song yeah i think he was uh sinatra said that it was like the best written love song ever 
I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. so John, where where do you fall on the uh, Beatles best band ever debate? Is oh, it a debate? Not really in my mind. I am a huge diecore, a hardcore Beatles fan. Yeah, I'm not going to apologize to them for them at all. Like I grew up listening to them, kind of like discovering them. I mean, I guess you could say discovering them, like teenage years, like. And when I say discover, more so like realizing like, oh, there's a lot more going on than just, you know, your love me do or, you know, hold my hand or <laughs> right. saw her standing there. Right. And even some of the, you know, tax man or um, paperback writer, you know, all that, you know, some of the middle years when it was kind of less doo teeny bop love songs and they got a little more kind of rock songs but more, yeah once it started to discover like even some of the quote-unquote filler tracks on magical mystery tour and you know of course like sergeant peppers and the white right. album or like awesome which, which albums, is i think some the, of the only later stuff album on the revolver that they've actually gone back and re- remixed not just not just remastered i think they just released the sergeant pepper oh for the, like the digital release mm-hmm. probably yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's available on CD as well, okay. but I think it's George Martin's son went back and, yeah, and remixed them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he's like a established mix engineer. He probably is. I have to imagine if if he did the project. I mean, or I suppose so. Yeah. If you're doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, he's also George Martin's son, so yeah, exactly. You know, have yeah. that pedigree behind you. That's that's not yeah. that's never a bad thing. Maybe it'd be really interesting to listen to the original release or. I guess the remaster of the or- original release and then then the newly mixed CD mm-hmm. and maybe maybe we can discuss those. Yeah, that'd be that might, might be might, might be an idea there. I imagine we'd probably come to the conclusion that oh, this newer remaster <laughs> is better sound. Well, it's a remix. Clear. There's a difference. Oh, oh, remix too. That's oh right. yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I don't know, but maybe maybe we're so used I haven't listened yeah. to it. So like maybe I'm so used to the old mixes that I dislike the new ones, even though that's true. Like things you wouldn't even think that would pop out to you. Or but that being said, if someone asks me, "Hey Kevin, would you remix this this Beatles album?" First, I'm gonna say, "Why yes, yes I will." (laughs) Secondly, I'm gonna live, eat, and and sleep these old mixes. I'm gonna I'm gonna know them backwards and frontwards and sidewards and you know just in and out and then i'm my remix of them is going to be kind of a homage a tip to the hat like yes i will put like yeah, a, i would put why, a different spin on them but yeah. just thinking of like like for come together you know the one distinct part of that is that tape echo on the the vocal right and it's like you can't get like, rid of if that you took away that you'd have literally shoot me and that's so not even the same thing yeah <laughs> Yeah, so so there are, there are definitely certain aspects that you kind of have to retain. It would be really interesting to see. I mean, I guess the goal would be just more clarity, yeah. kind of hear the songs in a a better spectral space. But I don't yeah. know. I could say there are like some subtle volume differences. For sure, like, you know, bringing up a lead guitar track up a little more. Right, and what we don't know is what what recording of the vocal harmonies, maybe. Yeah, what did they record that they? you know, kind of was buried in the mix that you can't really hear, you know? Yeah, yeah. Some but mistakes probably. You know, like a lot of those like... decisions kind of were made for you though, you know, not to take away from his 
his remix. Mm-hmm. Like, if, I don't know how many tracks they did Sgt. Pepper on, but like, it wasn't more than eight. They never recorded to more than eight during as the Beatles. Sure. So, you only have eight tracks to mix regardless. Yeah. So that means you're gonna have to live with the bounce choices they made. So mm-hmm. even if you remix, I don't know how much different you can get. Unless there's stuff that they just purposely left out. Like you mentioning this reminds me of something I read about um, towards the end of Abbey Road during the, oh, I can't remember which track it is, but it's the one that they actually have the drum solo, Ringo's drum solo, ah. uh, which is his only drum solo That's right. on a Beatles recording. There are actual guitar and maybe bass, but there are guitar tracks playing along with it too that they just took out to keep it as a drum solo. Oh, I see. They had, so to, like, kind of they had to coax him into doing the drum solo, did yeah, they? Yeah, because you know, he has the, the kick going, and it's kind of like an infamous like, approach to a drum solo these days. Huh. But uh, that was interesting that when I read that. Like, oh, there's like tracks that they muted right. that are actually existing during that. So that could be your new uh, remix for that. <laughs> that, that it's just, I just find that an interesting thought experiment. We may have shot our bolt on this one, I think. I don't think there's much else to say. and there's pro- Well, there's probably many more things to say. Many more even things. Even just about this track. But those are the things that came to my mind. I think we're approaching an hour and yeah, 20, 30 minutes or so. Not too bad. Uh, but I'm, I'm Kevin. I am John. This has been Coffee and Consoles. And we'll see you next time. Long days and pleasant nights, my friends. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Consoles. If you're liking what you hear, please hit that subscribe button and give us five stars. We sure do appreciate it. I know it's annoying, but those ratings help new people find the podcast, and that's what we want. We want to get this out to the masses. Yes. If you don't, my wife will kick me out. Thank you very much. <laughs>